Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, good morning. It's a good good morning. Well done. We are uh, we're still in our series on Abraham. We're coming into the home stretch, actually, though. So we're coming down to the end. Uh, this morning we're in Genesis chapter twenty. And uh, why are we studying Abraham? I haven't said this for a little bit. So just a quick reminder for us: we are studying the life of Abraham because. Abraham is someone who's a little bit set apart in scripture. His life is set apart. Uh, his faith is set apart. I mean, it, it's talked about in kind of a special way. And so we thought, you know what, let's dive into the life of Abraham and let's take a look at what his faith and his life was like. Maybe there are some things that we can all learn from Abraham that would help us in our own faith too. And one of the things that we said is that we tend to put people up on pedestals. And sometimes we do that in everyday life and sometimes we do that with those who are in the Bible or are heroes of faith. And, uh, and that's not necessarily a helpful thing to do. We put people up on pedestals and that just makes, when they make a mistake, it means the fall is that much greater. And so when we're looking at the life of Abraham, what we've discovered in this journey so far is that his life, his faith, and his decisions have not been perfect, have they? In fact, there's been a lot of things that happened in his life that have been like, whoa, I didn't even know that was there sort of thing. And so we want to remember that even though someone's imperfect, they can still follow God. And one of the things that set Abraham apart is the way that he continues to have faith, continues to walk with God, continues to journey with God, even despite some of the mistakes and the hangups. So we're going to jump into Genesis 20 this morning. One of the reasons that I've enjoyed this sermon series myself has been that we've divided the sermon up into these three parts every week. And so we have the go part where we jump into scripture and we actually read scripture, the whole thing. And I think that's really a lot of fun. I know some people may not enjoy that so much, but rarely do we actually take the time to take a whole chapter and just say, look, we're going to read the chapter. We're going to get the context. And because we've read the chapter before last week, We know where we're coming from in the journey, in the story. And so it's been great to jump into it that way. We have the grow part where we just look at the story we've read, the chapter we've read this week, and say, what from this story should really help us to grow? What can we challenge ourselves with from this story? And so that's been good. And then we finish every sermon with a gospel section. And we say, what from this chapter is illustrative of the gospel? The gospel means good news. Yes, there are gospels. There are four books in the beginning of the New Testament, and those are the narrative of Jesus' life. But the gospel is more than that. The gospel is good news. And so what's the good news that is present in this chapter as we look at it? And so we've been looking for that. And so that's one of the things that has made me excited about this. Um, It's been a lot of fun to prepare for. And so I, I, you know, we're coming down to the home stretch. I'll miss it, but it's good to be moving. So let's go into Genesis 20. I want to invite you guys to open your Bibles. We did get it so that the screen's working this week. You may have noticed there's no screensavers appearing. We'll have scripture on the screen, which is a wonderful thing. But I still want to encourage you to open up those Bibles if you want to this morning. If you don't have a Bible, you just don't own one, this is your first time grabbing the Bible, hey, take a Bible from our chairs. We want to give that to you as a gift because we think it is so valuable to have a Bible. If you're opening up the Bible that is in the, uh, the seats, we're going to go to uh, page 18 this morning, chapter 20, page 18, and we're going to just start here at verse 1. 
Remember last week, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. So just as the catch-up, that's where we were last week. So the, the chapter, or verse one starts out, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, it says this, now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And we'll just pause there. End of a sentence, but not the end of a verse. That's okay. Um, why did Abraham move? That's the question that I'm left with when I read that. Sodom and Gomorrah gets destroyed. Abraham suddenly moves. Why is that? And the answer is we have no idea, truly. We're not sure why he moved. Maybe he got scared about something with Sodom and Gomorrah after the destruction. Remember, he didn't live in Sodom and Gomorrah, but he lived near enough to Sodom and Gomorrah that when he was talking with God, they were standing somewhere like on a hillside looking down at the cities. And then during the destruction of the cities, Abraham goes back to that spot and you can see the smoke rising in the air. So he doesn't live in Sodom and Gomorrah, but he lives close enough to it that maybe there's something that happens after the destruction that makes him move on. And one of the things people say is maybe there are people that are now prejudiced against Abraham because Abraham is a prophet of this God that just you know, brought fire and destruction down in the city. And so maybe the entire region has become a very unwelcoming place to Abraham because he's still around, because he's one of the survivors, because he had a conversation with God ahead of time. It's possible. Uh, the other thing that scholars often point out too is he may have moved away because he was so upset about what happened with Lot and Lot's daughters. And just the end of the last chapter, if you want a page back, you can look at it. I'm not going to go into detail. But at the end of the last chapter, Lot, Lot is the nephew of Abraham, and his daughters are in a cave and his daughters get him drunk and rape him. And they get pregnant through that. And so maybe Abraham is really upset by that whole ordeal. And that's part of why he moves away. Because we're not told that he takes Lot with him. Let's pick it up here, the rest of verse 1 and 2. For a while he stayed in Gerar. And there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. And we'll pause there again. We have to be asking ourselves, come on, Abraham, what in the world? We just did this, didn't we? If we go back to chapter 12, where we started this series, Abraham gets called, and what's the first thing that happens when he gets called? He goes down into Egypt, and he lies about who his wife is. He's, when he goes into Egypt, he's scared because his wife is so beautiful that people will kill him to have her because he's the husband. But he knows that if he goes into Egypt and he says, well, I'm the brother, rather than kill him, people will pay him for her, which is exactly what happened. So here, once again, we have Abraham and Sarah going into a place, and Abraham saying, she's my sister. So I think first we just have to say, this is a lie, all right? Now, we'll find out later in the chapter that Sarah is his half-sister, okay? So I want to share that. Sarah is his half-sister. But that still means this is a half-truth. It's a lie by omission. It's still a lie. A lie is a lie. It's still not a good decision that he's made here. Secondly, the way that you care for your wife, the way that you protect your wife is different from the way that you care and protect for your, uh, your sister. It just is. And one of the things that we know from the last two chapters is that um, Sarah has finally been included, like specifically mentioned by name, by God, that there's gonna be a baby born to Abraham and Sarah. All the way up to that point, it was just Abraham's gonna have ch children. Suddenly, Sarah gets brought into it, and we know for sure Sarah's gonna have this baby. And an angel says, within the next year, 
So she's either pregnant right now or they're expecting that she is going to be pregnant and this doesn't seem very caring for her. And this, this is kind of bothersome to me. Abraham seems to fall back into the same trap of lying. Now, when Abraham gets called back in chapter 12, this is like 20 years ago. So one of the things I wanna mention is that it can be so easy for us as followers of Jesus to fall into the, some of the same traps we fought in, fell into in the past. All right? Those can be some of the worst traps for us because they have like, they got a hold of us in some way, shape, or form. You guys know what I'm talking about. There's certain things you go back to again and again and again, and it's just so hard to break the hold that thing has on you. For Abraham, it seems like it's a matter of control. When he feels like things are out of control, out of his control, he comes up with a plan to put him back in his control. And so once again, we see him falling back into this trap. The last thing I'll say about this, and this might be something that you're wondering too, is the, the verse two finishes and says that he sent for Sarah and took her. And you might wonder, what does that mean, that took piece? What does it mean? Because sometimes the Bible talks about things in ways that we don't talk about them anymore. And so I wanna know, does that mean that he, what has is, what is this king done with Sarah? And what this means is not sex. It means that it's a connotation of marriage. He took her and married her, all right? So once again, Sarah, because the thought is she's a sister, she's, she must be so beautiful, by the way. She's like 90-something, and she's catching the eye of King still. I mean, man. So he goes, and he, he marries her, all right? So she's now the wife of this king. Um, that's neither here nor there, sorry. Uh, let's pick it up in verse three. We'll just keep going. Um, but God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said, you are as good as dead because of the woman you've taken. She is a married woman. And we'll just pause there. I don't know how you feel about God speaking in dreams. I don't know if that's something that you've experienced in your walk with God, that God has come to you in a dream and spoken to you. Um, one of the things we find is that scripture is full of this. There's so many instances where God speaks to people through dreams. One of the neat things that I wanted to mention here is that um, there's kind of a pattern that when God speaks to someone who is not um, in a relationship with God, he does something pretty special. So we could say Abimelech probably does not know Yahweh. He does not know the God most high. This is his first interaction with him. When God speaks to somebody who doesn't have a relationship with him, God always seems to provide someone that does have a relationship with him nearby. So for instance, if we were to look at Pharaoh, Pharaoh has a dream, Joseph is there to interpret it. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, Daniel is there to help him. Abimelech has a dream, Abraham is here to help. That's a really cool thing just about the way God seems to work and shape when he speaks to someone that may not know his voice. He has someone nearby who does know his voice, and that's really neat. Um, but what God says to Abimelech, it's not so neat. He says, you're as good as dead. Um, some translations say, you are a dead man because the woman that you took is already married. This is a very serious thing for God. This is a transgression against God. That's the way it feels. Um, one of the ways we can look at this is kind of a confirmation of Romans 6.23 when it says, for the wages of sin is death. Sort of confirmation. Abimelech, you entered into something that is sinful. You're as good as dead. You're as good as dead. Pick it up in verse four. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? 
I have done this with a clear conscience and clear hands. And we'll just pause here. One of the things that I want to mention, and we're going to talk more about this later, but I'll mention it here so that we can kind of sit with it for a while. Um, Abraham lies to the king. So does Sarah. Abraham and Sarah lie. The king makes a decision based on that information, and the king ends up in sin. The way that we live, the way that we act, affects other people. I'm going to not say any more on that because we're going to get to that in our grow area, but I'm going to leave that here for now. Um, One of the things that we see, too, is that in the dream, God says to Abimelech, you are a dead man. When Abimelech responds to God, he said, will you destroy a whole nation? Like Abimelech makes this jump from it being, hey, you're in trouble, to suddenly the entire kingdom is in trouble, and we might wonder why that is. And so we can think about that a little bit. Uh, It's going to become clear by the end of the passage, so if you're cheating and reading ahead, shh. But um, right now, all that we know is Abimelech has made this jump, okay? And so maybe it's part of the, the idea that, hey, if the head of state someone who's the leader of a nation is convicted of a crime like this or is, um, is killed while they're the head of state. It can send the nation into turmoil. Maybe that's part of what he's thinking. It could send his entire kingdom into turmoil. And certainly history would support when that kind of thing happens, nations can tear themselves apart. Um, so it might not be a huge jump to make this uh, assumption that the nation is affected here. Um, but it might be more than that. Abraham might be really well known. He, his connection to God might be well known. The fact that there are cities, and not just two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, but the entire plain around Sodom and Gomorrah, small towns as well, has just been reduced to ash. A landscape that Lot said reminded him of what he heard the Garden of Eden look like is now ash. That word may have traveled ahead of Abraham, and there might be an association with Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed because of sin, God now has come to me in a dream and says, I'm a dead man because of my sin. The whole place is going to get destroyed. That might be part of the assumption that he's making. Let's go to verse 6. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so I've kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will pray for you, and you will live But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. We'll pause there. Um, A a pastor from a long time ago, a theologian named Matthew Henry says, uh, he says something I think is really neat. God kept Abimelech from entering further into sin. He kept Abraham from suffering wrong, and he kept Sarah from both. Have you, this is a relatable moment in my mind. Have you ever been on the cusp of doing something that you knew wasn't right? And, and let's just, let's call it sinful. Maybe it's a conversation. Maybe it's the way you're about to talk to somebody. Maybe you're about to commit a crime. I mean, you just think about, have you ever been on the cusp of doing something that you knew was wrong? And for some reason, you didn't. For some reason, you held back. There seems to be an idea here that that God has actually kind of entered in the situation and said, I'm going to keep Abimelech away from Sarah. It's going to make sure that he doesn't go any further than he already has. That sort of providence is present in many of our lives too. If we think back about our own story, about our own testimony, about some of the places that we've been and some of the things that we've seen, there are times that God enters in 
and helps to keep us from going further than we already have. That encourages me to stand back and say this. We might look around at the world and say, man, this place is messed up. But we can look around and say, this place is far less messed up than it could be. This place is far less messed up because God is choosing to hold us back at certain times. That's encouraging to me. Of course, then God tells Abimelech that he has to make restitution. You know, how do you make it better? How do you make the situation better? What do you gotta do to kind of cover over this sin, to, to have forgiveness of this thing? Well, the first thing you gotta do is return Sarah to Abraham. And then he says, and now you can't claim ignorance. Now you know. You didn't know before. I realize that. But now you know she's married. You can't claim ignorance anymore. Return her. So verse eight. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all of his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, what have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you've brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You've done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, what was your reason for doing this? I'm gonna pause here because I just wanna walk through this conversation for a moment. It should be really challenging to us. Again, Abimelech is not someone that we would necessarily call a God-fearer. It's not someone that, scripture would tell us that he has a relationship with God if that was the case, and we don't have that information. Um, but Abimelech engages Abraham in a way that's very God-honoring. So let's just look at this. First thing he does is he talks to his advisors, all right? So these are people that he trusts. He finds a couple people that he trusts, people that he knows are not going to spread whatever conflict he's gonna talk with them, right? These aren't people that are gonna gossip about it. These are people who are gonna listen to him, support him, give him some advice. Then Abimelech goes directly to Abraham. He doesn't make a a kingdom-wide announcement to put it all out there. He goes directly to Abraham. And then he makes his case clear to Abraham. He says, why have you done this? Did I wrong you? So the first thing he says is not, you messed up. First thing he says, why? Did I do something? Then he says, you've done something that shouldn't be done. All right, so just the way that he even orders what he's saying still honors the God who just came to him in a dream and the person he's going to that he has conflict with. This is, this is huge. And then Abimelech doesn't call Abraham bad names. He doesn't accuse him of being a, a false prophet or in modern day terms, a bad Christian, right? He doesn't do those things. The way Abimelech, someone who doesn't know God, engages Abraham should challenge all of us who do know God to do it better. When we have conflict with people, we can do better because we have so much more than what they have. They didn't even have this. We have this. We have direct instructions on how to deal with conflict. And so the fact that this person who doesn't know any of this does it well should challenge us to do it better. Uh, let's, let's pick it up here in verse 11. This is Abraham's reply. So why have you done this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. And we'll pause. 
again, this is a relatable moment to me. You ever had somebody in your life that you looked up to? Somebody who uh, you'd consider to be wise and mature? And maybe they were even a believer. They were a Christian, a Christian leader, maybe. And they do something. They make a decision that all you can do is stand back and say, oh, that is so disappointing. It's so disappointing. You know, that's how I feel when I read this passage with Abraham. There's so much water under the bridge for Abraham, Abraham and God, for their relationship. I mean, we've walked through this. God has talked with him and walked with him, has shown up. They've made covenant together. God has made him promises that he continues to fulfill. He's protected him in battle. He saved his, his nephew Lot from destruction. I mean, there's so much water under the bridge, and, and yet Abraham still chooses to lie. And lying is wrong. The lie puts someone else in sin, and, and just short of deeper sin. And when he's confronted with the question, why? I find his reasoning to be poor excuses at best. I mean, he, he looks at the king and says, I judged you all. I judged you all. I looked at this kingdom. I looked at this land. I decided you were all godless people, and you'd murder me for my wife. I judged you. And then, and then he goes further to say, well, I mean, and by the way, I mean, she really is my half-sister. I mean, she was my sister first and then my wife, so... I mean, that's, what? Like, he's backpedaling. Like, why? Come on, just be quiet now. Just stop. And then they have this deal, apparently. For as long as they've been traveling around, as long as they've been following God, they've had a deal where if anybody asks, Sarah is supposed to say, or Sarah's supposed to lie for him. That's also problematic to me. I'm just gonna say this right now, and I'm not gonna make a comment on Abraham as much as I'm just gonna say this out loud and let you guys deal with it. Um, if somebody comes to you and says, if you love me, you'll do this, be cautious of whatever that other component is. Really, think hard about it. What is it asking you to do? If you love me, you'll do this. So I look at this and I just keep thinking to myself, Abraham, you're better than this. Um, let's pick it up in verse 14. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, my land is before you, live wherever you like. To Sarah, he said, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you. Um, before all who are with you, you are completely vindicated. So I want to stop and I just want to say too, again, the judgment that Abraham had for this kingdom, for these people, whoever they are, his judgment was they'll kill me if they learn she's my wife. These aren't God-fearers. We can't any more clearly say how wrong he was. God comes to their king in a dream, and the king acts upon what God's saying. He is obviously fearing God. He's obviously listening to God. And even when he finds out that he's been lied to, that he's entered into sin, he's not so godless that he decides, you know what, I'm just gonna kill everybody. Abraham, you're dead. Sarah, you're dead. We'll wipe it all away. It never happened. We're never recorded in the history book. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He makes restitution. He does exactly what God told him to do. Return Sarah. And then more than that, what does he do? Abraham gets paid again in sheep, cattle, slaves, and a thousand shekels to cover this whole thing. And so, again, I, we just can't say hard enough how wrong Abraham's judgment of these people were. And that, again, should be something for us to consider. Are there people out there that we judge? without ever knowing them. 
by something that we might have heard about them. Maybe because of the color of their skin or an accent that they speak with. Who knows what it is? You gotta search deep in your heart. Are there an entire people group out there? Is there an entire kingdom of people that you have judged? You may be told, you may be shown how wrong you have judged them. We've said this before. The only person who should be judging is God because God has a heart that's different than ours. God has eyes that are different than ours. We don't have the heart and the eyes of God. We shouldn't be judging. Abraham has made a huge judgment here, and he was wrong. I'll just say this one last thing. You might wonder, too, what's the thousand shekels of silver? Um, is he trying to buy Sarah's silence? You know, like, is this some non-disclosure thing? And the honest truth here is just that, you know, in those times, Levitical law, in a, in a few hundred years as they develop Levitical law, one of the things that is made clear there is that if there's an offense, if you've done something, you must, in order to kind of repay that offense, you have to add to it. So maybe that's a sheep, or maybe that's a thousand shekels of silver. And this is probably the rule that the king is trying to follow here. Uh, let's finish out the section here, verse 17. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female slaves, so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. So this finally brings us some clarity. Why was Abimelech so worried about his entire kingdom? Well, because some sort of plague or sickness had stopped people from conceiving children. So given a long enough time, that's gonna end at least his family line. If not more widespread in the kingdom, it might end the kingdom itself because they can't have Children, So maybe the kingdom really was at stake. Um, and I also want to say, it might sound like I'm coming down really hard on Abraham this morning. I am. I want to just admit that. I, I probably have really high expectations of leaders, and especially of Christian leaders, and, and Abraham is a God-following leader here. I do have high expectations. I don't think that's wrong. I do feel disappointed when I, when I read this. If I was walking through this with Abraham, I'd feel disappointed as this whole thing kind of unveiled itself. I think it's important that we have those high expectations. Not a pedestal. We're avoiding the pedestal. We have to recognize that there is nobody who's perfect. There is no leader who is perfect. And we're not asking for perfection at all. But there's, there's decisions made along this route that could have been changed and things could have been different. And so we would hope that, that would, at least that would be present. Um, and though Abraham lied, Abimelech still took a woman that wasn't his to take. And I want to say that too. I'm not casting all the blame here on Abraham and saying, Abimelech, he's clean and there was no problems there. You know, there's customs that date so far back in time that those who are royal can have any woman that they want. And those customs continued even into the Middle Ages, just devastating things. Abraham lies, but he doesn't force Abimelech to take a woman that wasn't his. He doesn't force Abimelech to go and take her and marry her. That, that doesn't happen. Abraham was wronged here, and so I want to make that clear. I'm not saying there's anybody here that's, that's to blame for the whole thing. Um, this passage, though, does end with something that's beautiful. I think it's so important. Abraham prays for Abimelech. He prays for the household. He prays for healing. And, and there is healing that's brought to the household. And I think there's something to be said, a challenge for each of us this morning, for us to be able to pray for the person who's wronged us. Are you the sort of person that can pray for the person who wronged you? That can often be so hard. 
And I know that we all, myself included, probably struggle with forgiving everything that's out there, forgiving everything that's been done to us. One of the ways, the easiest ways to hold on to unforgiveness, one of the easiest ways to harden our hearts is to not pray for the people who hurt us. One of the quickest ways for our hearts to be softened, for us to have the eyes that Jesus has for everybody who's out there, regardless of the hurt that's come to us, is to pray for those who hurt us. Are you the sort of person that can do that? Is that a growth area for you? Is that the challenge for you this morning? There's somebody in your life that you've been holding on to something and you haven't prayed for them, but you know what? And you're, you're not praying for them because you're like, I know if I pray for them, then I'm gonna feel this way. You know, we, we deal with those sort of things. We have those conversations in our head. Well, I'm gonna challenge you this morning. Pray for the person that hurt you. Pray for the person who said that thing or did that thing. Pray for them. See how that begins to reshape your heart. There's all sorts of examples in scripture of this very thing happening. Miriam and Aaron attack Moses' leadership. Moses immediately prays for Miriam's healing from leprosy. In the book of Job, Job's friends come to him and accuse him of doing all sorts of stuff to bring all these catastrophes on himself. Job prays for them, and they get reconciled. Abimelech wrongs Abraham, and Abraham prays for healing and healing comes. That should challenge all of us. The way that God would work through our prayers, even when they're for someone who's hurt us. All right, we're gonna get into our grow area. And you know, I'm not really sure what to call our grow area this week. So you guys come up with a title and just let me know what I'm talking about. Um, the, The truth here that I see in this passage of scripture is that the name of Jesus, the name of God, can often open doors for us. Being someone who's a Christian and and claiming that you're a Christian can open doors. It can create trust and respect. Sometimes it creates fear. Our decisions affect other people's decisions. So just like in our story about Abraham this morning, your sin can also lead others to sin. And so if you're a leader this morning, And I don't just mean a religious leader. Yes, a religious leader, but any sort of leader. If you have other people that follow you, that look up to you, then this is really important for you. Your decisions and your actions affect other people's actions and decisions. That's something you have to carry. That's part of the burden of being a leader. Um, Matthew Henry, I quoted him earlier. I'm going to quote him again. He says, the sins of kings often prove plagues for kingdoms. Sins of kings often prove plagues for kingdoms. Let me tell you a story. There was once a young man who seems to have been touched by God. He was literally the chosen one. God anointed this one leader, and that leader had departed from him, and so God anointed a new chosen one, and it happened to be this young man. And and God walked with this young man through every endeavor, everything that he put his hand to. God blessed him in his vocation, and he protected him when it was dangerous. The, The young man became a soldier, and he went to war. God protected him and also gave him victory, victory at times that it never made sense. How in the world did he win that battle? Well, God entered in and gave him that victory. God blessed him with a close friend who cared so much for him, someone that he could share with and trust, a friend that would be willing to lay everything on the line for him. God even blessed him with a wife, one who was royalty. And so this young man goes from being a a nobody to a soldier to a king. And here's the thing. Everybody knows that this guy follows God. 
He worships God publicly. He dances in the street. This guy is the chosen one. He's the anointed one. There's no question that there is such a deep connection between God and King David. And one day, from his palace, he looks out and he sees a a beautiful woman named Bathsheba bathing. And he asks for her to be brought to him. She's a married woman. And her husband is away at war, fighting on behalf of the kingdom and of King David. David sleeps with her. And he learns that she's pregnant because of it. So he invites her husband home from war. And he tries to get him drunk. Get him drunk enough that he can sleep with his wife. And he'll cover up this pregnancy. It'll cover up this thing that's happened. But the husband's a pretty stand-up guy. He's pretty honorable. And he says to the king, look... If my men can't come back and be with their wives, I'm not going to be with mine either. And so David knows he's not going to win this way. So David sends him back to the front and puts him in a place where for sure he'll be killed. And he is. The husband goes back and he's killed. His wife is now a widow. And David is now free to marry the widow. David, a man after God's own heart, David, the anointed of the Lord. David, a guy that everyone knows follows God, calls a married woman to his chamber and sleeps with her. And yes, she also slept with him. But think about the power dynamics at play. He's a king. He's God's chosen one, her husband's boss. David calls the husband home, a husband who trusts him, who never suspects that he's trying to cover up a crime. What I'm trying to say is this. If you call yourself a Christian, if you call yourself a follower of Jesus or a follower of God, then you have to be willing to bear his image. It's placed upon you. And when you say, I am a follower of God, there's a certain expectation that goes with it. And even if you don't feel worthy of it, guys, it still goes with you. People still look and listen to you because you are following God. I want to read to you just this really short parable this morning. You may have heard the name Max Licato. He's a pastor, but he's written a number of children's books out there, beautiful stuff. But he's also written, written parables. And I want to read this parable because it's one thing for us to talk about King David. It's another thing for us to take these sort of situations and put them into modern language, modern context, so we can really take this home with us. This is a story involving a, a Manhattan skyscraper. Everyone in the building works for the CEO whose office is on the top floor. Most have not seen him, but they've seen his daughter. She works in the building for her father, and she exploits her family position to her benefit. One morning, she approaches Bert, the guard. I'm hungry, Bert. Go down the street and buy me a Danish. The demand places Bert in a quandary. He's on duty, leaving his post, puts the building at risk. But his boss's daughter insists, come on now. Hurry up. So what option does he have? As he leaves, he says nothing, but he thinks something like, if the daughter is so bossy, what does that say about her father? But she's only getting started. Munching on her muffin, she bumps into a paper-laden secretary. Where are you going with all those papers? To have them bound for an afternoon meeting. Well, forget the meeting. Come to my office and vacuum the carpet. But I was told, and I am telling you something else. The woman has no choice. After all, this is the boss's daughter speaking, which causes the secretary to question the wisdom of the boss. 
And on the daughter goes, making demands, calling shots, interrupting schedules, never invoking the name of her dad, never leveraging her comments with, my dad said, there's no need to. Isn't she the boss's child? Doesn't the child speak for the father? And so Bert abandons his post. An assistant fails to finish a task, and more than one employee questions the wisdom of the man upstairs. Does he really know what he's doing? But what if the daughter acted differently? Rather than demand a muffin from Bert, she brings a muffin to Bert. I thought of you this morning, she explains. You arrived so early. Do you have time to eat? And she hands him the gift. En route to the elevator, she bumps into a woman with an armful of documents. Oh my, I'm so sorry. Can I help, the daughter offers? The assistant smiles and the two carry the stacks down the hallway. And so the daughter engages the people. She asks about their families, offers to bring them coffee. New workers are welcomed and hard workers are applauded. She, through kindness and concern, raises the happiness level of the entire company. She does so not even mentioning her father's name. Never does she declare, my father says, there is no need. Is she not his child? Does she not speak on his behalf, reflect his heart? And when she speaks, they assume she speaks for him. And because they think highly of her, they think highly of her father. They've not seen him. They've not met him. But they know his child, so they know his heart. I'm sure that you guys have heard the story, or the saying, more is caught than taught. More is caught than taught. Certainly there are times that you should have very awesome and, uh, and forward conversations about who God is and who Jesus is in your life and the way that you follow them. But trust me when I tell you, there is so much that people are catching when you're not having those conversations by the way that we live and the choices that we make. So what are your decisions telling the people around you about? Think about Abraham. The decisions that he made in this chapter, what do they tell Abimelech about God? There's probably 1,500 people that follow Abraham. Remember, we said this before, he's like a sheik. He's just got tons of people that are part of his family and a part of his community. What are those 1,500 people who, if you remember, also were circumcised with him in covenant with God. That's how bought into Abraham and to God they are. What has he just taught them by the decisions that he's made? What are you teaching those around you? The people that love you, respect you, that walk with you, that look up to you? And if you really wanna know, ask. Not of a stranger, not of someone that you know doesn't have your best interest in mind. If you really wanna know, find someone that you trust, someone that you know loves you, and ask them, what about my life shows you who God is? What about my life doesn't? Both those answers are probably really hard to hear. But both those answers may be the very thing that catapults you into the spiritual growth that you're looking for. What does your life teach others about who God is? Are you brave enough to ask the question? Let's get into our gospel section. We're gonna finish up with this. We're, gonna, we're just gonna lead us into communion this morning. You know, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created the sky and the stars and the moon. He created plants and animals. 
He cultivated a garden. Gardens don't happen by accident. You all know that if you garden any time. They don't happen by accident. God, the creative, wonderful creator, made a garden and he put things where he wanted and he decided how the animals would interact. He decided if they would get along. He decided where to put mankind and where to put this tree and that tree and he put man and woman in this garden and he had a relationship with them and the best way we can describe that relationship is with the word shalom. We've talked about that word here before but shalom is peace. It is, it is like the deepest peace you can have. If you greet someone or you say goodbye to somebody and you say, shalom, peace be with you, what you're saying to them is that we're good. On the deepest of levels, I'm holding nothing against you. You're holding nothing against me. We're good. And so when God creates mankind, he puts them in this garden, there's shalom. That's the relationship he has. And God then created us in his image. And when he creates us in his image, he leaves his fingerprints all over it. Just go up and touch a window. Not here because we have to clean it. But go up and touch a window. You leave your fingerprints all over it. As God creates mankind, he leaves his fingerprints all over them. And so God, being the creator, being the creative one he is, he leaves fingerprints of creativity on you. He, you know, the way that you sing, the way that you draw, the way you paint or arrange flowers, the way that you build, the way that you work with your hands, the way that you clean, the way that you landscape, the way that you garden, all of that is creativity and that comes because God the Father is creative and he has placed that in you. And so just like the fingerprints of a creative God are all over you, the fingerprints of a decision-making God are all over you. God created us in his image, and God is a choice maker. He's a decision maker, and he's given you that same ability to be a decision maker, to be a choice maker. Not just you, but every single man and woman throughout mankind, including the very first man and woman. And one of the things that this book teaches us, one of the things that we see as a theme throughout scripture is that from the first man to the most current man, we seem to have this knack of choosing our way over God's way. Even though God has provided this wonderful, shalom-ridden way, we choose our way. We choose power, choose money. We choose judgment and hate and prejudice. We choose our work, choose popularity, sex, we choose our version of justice. We're not willing to wait for God's version. We choose violence. We choose to trust in, well, we choose to trust in a lot. So often it's not in God. See, when we choose our way and not God's way, we break the shalom that God created. The way that our relationship is set up where there is peace between us and God, we injure the peace. One of my favorite theologians, Plantinga, says that, that sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom. It's the guilt that we have in disturbing shalom, not just between God and I, but between us and one another. When we injure the peace that is between us, that is sinful. And so we break God's shalom when we choose our way and not his way. And you know, another word for that is sin. In Romans, we talked about it earlier, the Apostle Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. You've probably heard the saying that crime doesn't pay. Sin does. Sin pays in a wage called death. 
Today's service, uh, today's sermon was called The Dead Man. And probably you realize it's called The Dead Man because this is what God says to Abimelech in his dream. That Abimelech has been caught in sin and because he is, he's a dead man. The truth is, if we're all honest, if we're all honest, we've all been caught in sin. If we're all honest, then we are all the dead man. And for you and I, death is a wage that we can be paid one time. That's it. Unless you're the dead man that won't stay dead. And see, this is what changes everything for us. Unless we serve a God that so loved the world that so loved the world that he so lovingly created, that so loved the world uh, uh, where he put every single thing, that so loved every man and woman that he created perfectly, that so loved all the men and women that he left his fingerprints on. It, unless we serve a God that so loved the world that he would send his son into the world and that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Because if sin pays in death, then believing in the Son of God grants life. And there can be, and it's not just life, it is eternal life. There is nothing more opposite than death than life and life eternal. It's only the Son of God, being both fully God and fully man, that could ever enter, enter into the death that's ours, that could ever be paid that wage of death and still live. It is only Jesus that could restore the shalom that we walked away from. And in restoring the shalom, we are granted life and life eternal. He frees us from our bondage to sin. He frees us from our bondage to death. Jesus makes the greatest sacrifice so that we could be made whole once again. We are going to celebrate communion. And like I said before, communion is a time for us to remember what was done on that cross. For us to picture in our head what was done on that cross. That a man hung on that cross. That a wage that should have been ours to be paid in death was paid to him. And he was the only perfect man. That wage was not his, but he took it upon himself. And so we celebrate communion with a sense of solemnness because of the great price that was paid. But guys, it can't stay solemn because Jesus didn't stay there. He was the dead man who couldn't stay dead. It can't stay solemn. It has to move into celebration. When you leave this place today, yes, be solemn here. Think about what was done, but don't be afraid to celebrate what has been given to you because he didn't stay in the grave. He rose again, and he has reunited us with God. He has restored the shalom. He has broken those chains. He has forgiven you of everything that has been done because that son was sent into the world to save the world, not to condemn the world. God so loved this world, so loved each of us, that he sent his one and only son into this world, not to condemn it, but to save it. This morning, that is what we celebrate. When we walk out those doors, that is why we have a smile on our face. That is why we are excited. And even despite all of the junk that is going on in our life, all the stuff that we are mourning, that we are hurting from, we have a smile on our face because we know that this, the shalom between us and God has been restored. Through that, through what Jesus did, 
He's the dead man who just won't stay dead. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together.